This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Ben Van Kirkwijk. I got it right. Hi, Germ, how are you? Did, did I get it right? You did, yes. Yes, that's... Yeah, probably, probably say it better than I could say it myself. So. <laughs> How's the information war treating you? Pretty good, I think. Yeah, no, it's 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 always interesting. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah, it's it's endlessly interesting at the moment. Certainly in in my little field. What makes it interesting? Well, it's I mean it's it's a learning process for me. Like there's a, I I am constantly kind of finding um and enjoying i guess the deep dives into different uh mysteries and different um angles when it comes to the uh, what you would maybe call a true history or the long history of 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 human civilization for example i mean i just i have i'm just about to release a a full hour-long documentary on a place called tiwanaku and puma punku in bolivia and for a couple of years now i've been digging into these books and it's just one of the things that i you know it is very interesting is is kind of comparing the research that's been done over time with with the people that did the primary work on sites and then how either that gets dismissed or how it gets treated by by the mainstream archaeology uh, kind of gatekeepers of 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 history that's it's for some reason archaeologists seem to own the official dating and the official records of all of these things but there's actually in, when you dig under the surface a little bit with a lot of these places like Egypt South America there's turns out there's far more to it uh, a lot of the time and um yeah, so that's I, I like getting into those details, and I guess I guess it's something of of an information war that happens in this uh, in this realm as well. It's like that battle for hearts and minds, and you know, orthodoxy versus the the uh, I guess the uh, alternative side. Yeah, I was going to ask you now why why does revising history actually matter? Well, for me, it's 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 fairly it's an altruistic goal. For, I mean, apart from just being interested in it, I think it's. You know, history is the thing that informs us. It's what gives us a lot of perspective. Like history, history you know, learning history gives you perspective on where we are now. And mm. one of the things that that, that I think uh, we assume at the moment, I kind of, it's kind of, I kind of, I call it a pillar of Western civilization or just a pillar of our times is that this, this idea that, you know, we've come from the Stone Age and we've, we've, you know, the Sumerians and Babylonians and Egypt and we went out, we, we progressed through, ancient civilizations and we kind of hit you know into we we got into our time the industrial age and we're on this like linear path if you like from the stone age from you know uh as john anthony west would say that the stone age to striped toothpaste this is and this is kind of a built-in idea to how we think of ourselves as species as as a civilization but i think if more people realize the fact that well we've actually been here a lot longer and we've built up civilizations in the past a long time ago and then we've been wiped out. We've had tremendous cataclysms that have happened to this planet. Uh, there's something called the Younger Dryas um, cataclysm or the Younger Dryas uh, impact. It happened around 13,000 years ago. Uh, there's a lot of new evidence for, evidence for this. It's only something that's emerged in science in the, in the last decade uh, or thereabouts. And when you combine that with a longer picture of history and, and you come to understand that, well, no, we've had you know large civilizations in the past. We've had global technological civilizations in the past that the evidence for those things are echoing down th through to us in places like Egypt and South America. 
but the idea would be that well you know it's we 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 should be aware that these cataclysms will happen like our time kind of as a as a fragile technological civilization is 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 limited and temporary and i think if more people understood that and and really absorbed it i think it may this is the altruistic part it, it may help to change priorities in the long term right so if this was common knowledge that got taught in schools uh, rather than this idea that you know there were primitive ancient civilizations and we're mm. more advanced than anything that's happened before if this got absorbed into the the human psyche i think uh, it might help us to change our priorities you know a little less a little less money on tanks and a little bit more money on space exploration things like that because ultimately that's the the only way we survive in the long term uh, it, is to work together and get off the planet eventually it also helps uh, us figure out who we are I think it does yeah yeah absolutely uh, it's it's yeah it informs us and i think it's uh, for me one of the the great things about studying the past is that it does put it puts everything into context like it, it helps to you can to i guess what uh, disseminate the wheat from the chaff kind of thing where where you mm. can understand what trends and what's important and what you care about in today's times a lot of that is just purely mired in the in the the social structure of the world today it's it's transient uh, you don't have to worry about a lot of these things. You can spend your time and energies on things that actually matter to you. Mm. And I think, um, you know, looking at history and the way that people lived and the achievements that they that they uh, they reached uh, helps to inform that and give everything context. So it certainly helped me in that respect. When did your journey start? Uh, it a long time ago. I mean, I've always been interested in history, so I've got to kind of thank my mother. She was a history teacher, uh, so I had an interest in it. But I, you know, ended up in a twenty-year career in IT. But you know, sort of at the later phases of that, I, I, I really began to to be re-energized by history. And a lot of this is informed by well, you, you, you your priorities in life change. You have a few psychedelic experiences, you know, these types of things, and. Um, and uh, I once I read Graham Hancock's work, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods, which is really, a, really a fantastic book. It's a great introduction for anyone interested uh, in these topics. And it presents a lot of the evidence that, you know, there was a global high technology civilization uh, and looks at all the evidence about how that's been filtered down into the ancient civilizations as we know them. Uh, and I just was really interested in that space. And I was following him uh, after, I think, his first appearance on Rogan. And uh, he tweeted and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to Peru and Bolivia in, uh, I think it was 2013. And, you know, to do research for the next book, which turned out to be magicians of the gods, the follow-up to fingerprints. And I was like, you know, shut up, take my money and jumped on that trip with him. So I spent two weeks uh, with Graham and about 25 other people in Peru and Bolivia, 2013, had the chance to do the same thing through Egypt with, with, with Graham uh, in 2015. And yeah, that was it From once in 2015, I was like, there's so much more to this story. There's so much we're missing here. There's so much that I, I think is is interesting, and it 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 also corresponded with well, nobody's been taking a good look at these sites and filming with the 4K stabilized camera equipment. So I saw that there was like a, a space to go and take a fresh look at a lot of these um, these sites and 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 look at this information that guys like Graham have been putting out for a long time. Mm. So that's what I did, and after that I I quit my job and I went down the crazy surreal world that is YouTube, uh, where I ended up, and yeah, still here. So, yeah, just off topic, but you haven't really encountered too much censorship on YouTube, have you? No, uh, I, I can't say that I have. Um, I, I, my stuff, I, I do, I guess I keep it fairly, uh, 
I try to keep it academic and focused on the engineering. Uh, mm -hmm. I do try to take a, a real logical approach to what I'm showing and I'm not, I mean, it is, there's, I'm sure there's been some call for it and the writings on the wall, I think in a little way, because a lot of the positions that I present and the evidence that I'm, I'm giving are definitely like anti-establishment, but you know, when an anti-orthodoxy, um, it's just that I, I, I think history isn't as, as, as hot a topic as a lot of the other ones in society. Like if you would talk, if I was to talk politics or, you know, social, social commentary, then I'm sure, uh, I would have hit that wall with YouTube. Like I know a lot of people have, like I know you have, um, but yeah, no, not yet, but I, I, I see it coming. I think eventually for sure, this is, there's a chance that it's going to hit uh, my space as well. So. Ben, I have to correct you though. You said the writing's on the wall. The hieroglyphics is on the wall. <laughs> the hieroglyphics, yes, yes. The graffiti's <laughs> on the wall. That's right. Yeah. Um, where do where do we start? I mean, with with I mean, this is such a big topic. Where does one Huge. start? Yeah, where does one start? Well, for me, uh, what the things that I focus on is is really the 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 evidence in a lot of the stonework, the the engineering aspects of what we're looking at, because I when you can break down kind of the issues with our mainstream story of histories, which 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 really is this 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 concept that the ancient civilizations built everything like the Egyptians built everything we see in Egypt, the Inca built everything we see in Peru. And they were relatively primitive. They used primitive tools like copper chisels, pounding stones, things like this to achieve them. Uh, and it's just, you know, they worked really hard and they got it done. Um, there's, there's a lot of problems with that story. Uh, the way that it's set up, the, the timing of it, for, I think we, uh, I, I might have mentioned to you before, but it, just the old kingdom in general in Egypt, I mean, this is where they achieved their greatest works and it's the earliest period of, of that civilization. It's almost like they came out of nowhere, peaked, built the pyramids, mm -hmm. did all of this incredible work in granite uh, and, and then faded off over the next several thousand years. Uh, similarly, similar story, similar story with the Inca, the, the, the oldest layers, the lowest layers of the stonework are, there's a huge technological gap between, between that and, and what's sitting on top of them. Uh, so there's there's contradictions in the story there, but but from a um, an engineering perspective, you can really tear into a lot of this and look at the evidence for things like machining, uh, precision, and 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 uh, saw cuts, things like this that that really aren't possible to achieve by hand tools and by the methods that are ascribed to them. And it's kind of one of the strange things to me is that it's the people that are out there demonstrating a lot of this are in fact engineers mostly. Like if you I go, I go to Egypt quite regularly and we take engineers with us. And every time I have an, an engineer in there who, who, you know, works with tools, might work with precision instruments, actually works in materials like stone or, or in steel and metals, it blows their mind. They just look, they look at it and go, there is no way that you can achieve the stuff we're seeing with these primitive tools and methods, which is all we found uh, in the archaeological record. Yet, the gatekeepers to this whole space, if it's ancient, then the archaeologists and the Egyptologists have the final say as, as far as the the textbooks and the you know the, the universities and the story goes you know you, you wouldn't ask a, an archaeologist to to engineer the chair that he's sitting on so in a, in a lot of cases they really don't have the background necessary to to talk about this stuff so it, it just gets kind of dismissed and and pushed aside and said well they worked really hard i mean this is was zahi huas's response when i asked him in egypt um at a at a d supposed debate he was having with hancock uh, there was a, that's a whole other funny story, but he, uh, you know, his, his response to things like, how did they do it? How did they achieve some of these things? He, he'll say, well, it was a national project. They just tried really hard. Like they, the whole civilization was behind it. Everyone, the, the will of the King and the people to do this. 
And I look at things like, well, the space program, right? <laughs> you know, like like the Apollo moon missions, for example, that was also a national project. Like we had a, NASA had a, mm. okay, yep, the Apollo moon missions, but let's assume it, it, it was all <laughs> legit, but they had a huge chunk of the budget, much larger than what they did. It was a national project. The people were behind it. But it wasn't a case of like just getting everyone together and throwing some people at the moon. Like it took technology, it took, you know, precision. It took all of these uh, advanced, advanced things to make that happen. And it's the same story when we go back into the past. So digging into the details of things like the tens of thousands of tiny hard stone vases. Like it's it's a strange development. Like we go through people think of things like pottery vases. Pottery is one thing, and the Egyptians did pottery, no doubt. But another thing that, that really comes to, to us from the very earliest time in Egypt are tens of thousands of incredibly intricate stone vessels. And these are precision made, like, and they're made from some of the most, the hardest material that you can find, not just the granite, but schist and nice. Uh, there's even vases made from corundum, which, are, which is a nine on the most scale of hardness. The only thing harder than it is diamond. Uh, so you have, you have tens of thousands of these vases that are that are all made from stone most of it's harder than steel they're precision made they're perfectly symmetrical they show signs of of lathe marks and tooling marks uh that is not a technology that the that the egyptians had at that time and what's interesting about them is that they all come from the very earliest period uh of ancient egypt and in fact where they found most of them there was forty thousand of them found underneath the step pyramid of Djoser in saqqara and that's a third dynasty structure. And even in the museum at Saqqara, when they talk about this, they say, well, most of these were probably from the first and second dynasties, and they were heirlooms. So, okay, so we go back to the first and second dynasty. Where did, how did these guys make them? And, and the first and second dynasty, the techniques you see in, in the making of these vases is not reflected in any of the techniques of the stonework or the buildings that they did otherwise. Uh, you can even go back and find objects like this that come from pre-dynastic times, and I just, I love the fact that they're, they admit in the museum, it's like, these are heirlooms, these are inherited. I'm like, well, they were probably inherited long before that. Like They've probably been around because the Egyptians had them. They found them in the third dynasty. They tried to replicate them. So there's, there's a whole other industry sprung up after the third dynasty where they would make fairly primitive stone vessels in alabaster, which is much softer. Uh, but they don't show all the signs of precision um, and, and machining that you see in the hard stone vessels that come from the very earliest period. And after that, they, they didn't make any more of these stone vessels. They only they worked in alabaster. Uh, they would reuse the stone vessels in later times. Um, it's pretty funny, too. The museum, they have stone vessels that were used as canopic jars, so for the organs and the mummification process. But instead of a machined and perfect stone lid, they would have these mud stoppers on top. It's like if you're going to make the vase, you might as well make a decent lid for it. But because they didn't have the lids, all the stoppers, and they're still proudly displayed in the museum. It's just like a mud, like a mud stopper. They would they would block them up with that. But and we can take a look at a few examples if you like here. Mm. This is an example, one of my favorite examples, actually, of a, of a very hard stone vase. Uh, this one's made from, I think, a form of granite. You can see all the white dots on it. They're the crystal occlusions in it. Uh, machining and working in this in this material is very difficult. You have you have a a lot of these stones are conglomerates, which meaning they're made up of different types of material, and some of it goes from very hard like quartz uh, to softer materials like mica. So as you're working in it, you know you, you, it's very easy to pit the surface and to chip it or to crack it. Even some of them are quite as as hard as they are are quite brittle. 
Um, but the, the amazing thing about this uh, vase is, if you take a look at it from another angle, is that it's so well made that it balances almost like it's sitting on the, the tip of an egg, like the, the very tip of it. It's it's absolutely breathtaking in in, uh, in real life. And these things come in a variety of, of shapes and sizes. How old is uh, that? I have a, How old is that? This one, it, at, at least... 5,000 years old I think I think I think I think much older in fact um, this is an, a, an example of the other types of vases you might see with these the brescia with the, the very large crystal occlusions in them now these things come in shapes and sizes large and small in fact there's there's ones that um, I will uh, there's a really good image of a tiny tiny little vase that um, let me just find it that is on display in the museum. They get right down to like, you know, fingernail size. Like here, for example, if you, if you take a look at this, you can see a screw head here. Like this is just a little screw head here next to the piece of paper. And this is a, a small vase also made from hard material. So they, they, they got really tiny as well as very large. Like you'd, you'd require a few people to pick these things up. How, how would they have made that? I don't know. It's, it, it, all of these required the use of, at, at a minimum, lathes. And some material and some cutting point that was capable of cutting extremely hard stone. And guys like Flinders Petrie, who was a Victorian era, one of the pioneers, one of the first guys to apply uh, modern engineering principles to what he was looking at. In fact, he, he was it was he lived during the rise of the industrial age, which it's a it's a it's a it's a kind of a weird aspect to uh, to this that that really blows my mind. Um, is that it took us getting to the industrial age. So only like 150, 200 years ago to have enough technological capability to even understand what we're looking at. Like, so this stuff has existed for at least 5,000 years. I think there's a good chance this is 10, could be tens of thousands of years old. But we only in the last couple of hundred years have developed enough capability to even understand what we're looking at. Uh, this, for example, is something called a schist disc. Uh, it's made from... From schist, this is carved out of stone. It was broken. It's you can see it's been repaired. They've they've reconstructed it, but this is an incredibly complex shape, out of very brittle, made of very brittle, very um, very hard stone. Uh, this was found in a first dynasty tomb. Uh, there was a prince where they found this in his uh, dynasty. So this came from the very earliest periods. Uh, uh, where of, where? It, it was um, I'm not sure exactly where the tomb was, but I think that it was might have been Sabu, Prince Sabu, but he was a first dynasty uh, pharaoh. So he was or, well, or Egypt. prince Egypt in Egypt. Yes, in Egypt. Actually, yeah, of course. A lot of this stuff comes from Egypt, and this is my one of my very much personal uh, favorites here, which is um, on display in the museum, as you can see next to bone and bead ornaments. But it's a hollow tube of lapis lazuli with a gold sheath, and it's just labeled pre-dynastic. Because it came from a pre-dynastic burial site, uh, and this is again in an incredible engineering achievement. This is a, a hollow tube that's been machined, uh, it's been created. There's, there's, this is ex would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to do with hand tools, uh, and it comes from a pre-dynastic location, so before the civilization of Egypt got into its dynasties. And in fact, there's, there's evidence for uh, a site that's now flooded after they. They created the Aswan Dam in the 60s. Uh, there was an excavation at a site uh, on the shores of, of the, what is now the current lake. Uh, that was a pre-dynastic site. They found uh, buried human remains. They found steel, uh, uh, stone vases like the ones we've been seeing. And they did carbon dating of the organic material that was in them. And it came back as, as 13,000 to 15,000 years old. So these but stone even, vases. 
even if carbon dating is not accurate it's it would still be thousands of years old yes so all you're dating is the is the organic material of that mm. burial site but you know this is well and truly before um the Egy egyptian civilization ever arose so there's evidence for machining in these things. Petri, I've got a, a bunch of videos and documentaries that we get into the, the tool marks and the the cutting techniques, and you can you can clearly see, um, for example, uh, I'll show you one more here real quickly. Um, where is it? It's the one. So this is from beneath the step pyramid. So this was we were, I was down beneath the step pyramid. It goes like five six levels down. There's like six miles of tunnels down there, and there's broken. This is where they found forty thousand of these vases, and this is the broken piece of one of them. But you can quite clearly see that the tooling marks that are in the bottom, you even have a centering mark here. Uh, and this has been made on a lathe or on a machine. So it, the, the, what this that means is... is I mean, it, sorry, that is a precision circle. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely turned. Mm. So what it, the, the, the impact of this is what it implies that there was a much greater level of technology in play at the very earliest, at, at, at a minimum, at the very earliest parts of the civilization. Now, we've not found any tools. We found copper chisels... You know, pounding stones, very primitive tools. And so the archaeologists conclude that, well, everything must have been made with those tools because those are the tools that we found. But the, the, the evidence for something else going on is right in front of us. Now, this, this also extends to, to things like tube drills, gigantic saws that have cut stone. Uh, there, there is, there's plenty of evidence that's written into the stone that suggests a high degree of technological prowess and engineering. So, in fact, power tools like... Uh, Yusuf uh, Awan, the guy, my my friend and guide in Egypt, that shows me a lot of these things, and uh, we work together when we when we go there. Uh, he calls them power tool markings, and you you have in some places on some of these statues and things overcuts into the stone. Which, if you if you're grinding away with a copper bar and sand and water, you don't make overcuts. It would take you a day and a half of effort to make an overcut. But we find overcuts where where a power tool has cut beyond where it is. So where, where it was supposed to go, um, evidence, there's evidence for massive tubular drills. And I, this is a, an interesting topic as well. I, I have a, an hour and a half video just talking about tube drills uh, because, and again, Flinders Petrie found, found the evidence for this. You can, you can actually see the striations on these cores. So what they would do is, is they, would, they would take, uh, here's a good example. Um, there's that box in uh, the museum. It is uh, here. So these are these are like tubular drills. So you can imagine like there's a there's a tube drill that, that cuts down into the granite and you snap off the core, right? And you can see the width of the tool tip here, and you can see uh, uh, where the core is snapped off. So we found a number of these cores, and Petrie found one that's quite famous. It's called uh, Petrie's core number seven, and it's on on display in the Petrie Museum, which just so happens to be one of the only places in the world that has actually let researchers actually experiment and and work with that stuff because if you wanted to analyze like the core drills that are in you'll, you'll it'll never happen in in the Cairo museum or in any of the major sort of egyptology uh, museums they won't let researchers touch this stuff or look at it but the guys in the petri museum did and you had engineers like christopher dunn that have verified what petri found which was that on that core there's a spiral groove so it's it's a continuous spiral groove that suggests when you measure it out, the penetration rate into the granite, uh, so so how many revolutions it takes to, to go down, is something like 500 times greater penetration rate than we can achieve with our modern tools cutting into this material today.
So we have these modern high-speed drills that will get the job done and they can do it fairly quickly. But the cores and Petrie's core number seven in particular suggests that however these were cut in the uh, in ancient times, it, it may have been much slower, but it, it, va it was vastly more efficient at cutting into the granite, like 500 times uh, better cutting rate, so penetration rate down into the, into the granite. Um, so it's things like that, and it's really anomalous. Like, where, how, how is that possible? What cutting tool tip did they use? Was it ultrasonic? Was there heat involved? There's, there's a real mystery uh, when it comes down to the engineering aspect of a lot of these things. And, you know... Ben, just before you go to the next slide, yeah, what, what do you think um, is the reason for... Um, technology not being found is it possibly just too deep below the surface so this is the where are the tools question it's a it's a mm. good one it comes up a lot uh there's several reasons for it so any first of all anything metallic so if there's any metal it's that it either erodes so you know this is that you've probably seen some shows that look at our civ so if our civilization ended you wouldn't have a lot left after a few hundred years, let alone after say five or six thousand years. We, there'd be very little left. So a lot of a lot of metal material does erode. And secondly, anything metal has been found and reused and remelted down and reused and shaped into weapons and things like that. It's metals were always extremely precious throughout all of these. So if, if you assume that all right, there was an ancient civilization, it got wiped out with a cataclysm. Then arose the modern, or I guess the, the more recent ancient civilizations like the Egyptians, the Sumerians, etc. Anything metal gets reused. It just gets taken and stolen. It's extremely rare to find metal uh, of anything like that um, on these archaeological sites because you have thousands and thousands of years of these sites being reused and quarried and the stone is taken away and anything metal gets taken, it gets, gets cast and, and broken down. Mm. Um, one of the other things that I like to talk, think about in this is like, you don't leave tools on a job site either. So the people that did this, you know, you're not going to find the tool laying around next to the artifact yes, because you probably, you probably take the tool with you and it's put somewhere else. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see something like that found one day. So for example, this is, you know, there was a tool that made this, this is an eight inch tube drill into pink granite, extremely tough material. And, you can see right on the lip of it. If you look, you can see the thinness of, of what this, this, you can see the width of the tool at the edges here. Uh, it's actually very thin, but a very powerful tool to be able to cut a huge tubular drill like this into granite. I've, this is the biggest one that I've seen. This is at, at Karnak, uh, which again has parts of this temple that, that go back to the, the oldest times uh, of the Egyptian world. But that's, yeah, so that's the where are the tools question. And I don't, I don't think we need the tools to prove that, that, that they were used. We have the result of the tools here. And the fact remains that you cannot replicate this stuff mm. uh, by any of the primitive um, hand methods. And there's been an ongoing sort of battle between people that say you can, and there's a lot of engineers and guys like Chris Dunn that are, that are showing that you can't. And it's it, the devil is in the details in a lot of these experiments. It's a lot of the times it's a false comparison what they what we need to do is we need to fully analyze these ancient examples including the most difficult aspects of their creation and then someone needs to demonstrate that they can do that with these primitive methods that they say did it and that must include the most difficult aspects of mm. the uh of, of the ancient example now no one's ever done that no one's ever sawn 
a complete block into like a granite block. Like for example, there's um, you know, these uh, saw cuts that you see as well. It's not just tube drills, but it's also saw cuts. So these these giant circular saws. This is a big block of basalt that's at Abu Sia. Oh, look at that. And it has this it has an arc to it, and you can see the striations on the stone uh, from where that blade has passed under. In fact, there's a little lip here even where you can see that the blade was actually very thin, and it's got an arc to it. So it was a circular saw or a swing saw. But no, no one in their modern times in experiments has actually ever cut like a piece of stone like this. No one's made one vase. No one's made one precision box. Yeah, using no a chisel. Cut a single block. Yeah, using the primitive methods. No one's ever demonstrated that. Yet there are millions of tons of granite and, and, and material like this that has been cut. There are tens of thousands of these vases. There are hundreds of boxes of precision-made mm. boxes that defy I mean, your imagination. It's like, we don't know how they were made. Yeah, I mean, and the most obvious, without even seeing a picture, is the way the pyramids, uh, those blocks, were put together with absolutely no gaps between them. There's no possible yeah. way you can do that with a chisel. No, it's very difficult. And that's a, that's a, you know, that's a style of construction, that megalithic style of construction that we see uh, all over the world. I mean... Here's another one. I have to share this. Uh, this mm. is one of my favorite examples. This is, um, and they, they stamp these things out like they're in a mill. So this is the end. It's called the end of what you'd call a lotus-shaped column. I mean, look at uh, that. This is the, the end of this. Is it's 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 granite. So pink granite from Aswan. Incredibly tough stuff. Uh, these things. Beautiful. It may have been 40, 50 feet uh, long. Oh yeah, and it's and it's absolutely precision made. Like it. This is. Um, look at that. The lines on it are incredible. And it's been laying out in the desert here at, at Bast uh, the Temple of Bastet for God only knows how long. But you can find these all over the place. They're at Giza. They're at Saqqara. They're at, at Tanis. They're at Bastet. Just lying around. Just lying around. And and they, they were probably hundreds of them. And they're stamped out like they were in a mill. They're all precision made. They're perfectly symmetrical. Yeah, I mean, no sorry. Look at, that, look, look at that perfectly <laughs> circular hole. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, honestly, I think these were made on some sort of giant lathe. Like this may have been the, the, the turning, like the, the mounting point for what would have been a massive, probably vertical lathe that, that created this. And then obviously you're not, you're not lathe turning the, um, the, uh, the, the lines at the top. You have to carve it. And these, these are very complex shape too. So you have to imagine getting this piece of granite out of the ground. It, it has to be as wide, if not wider, than the, the flowered end at the top. Jeez. First of all, finding a piece of granite like that's very difficult. You can't that's just that's not surface granite. You have to you have to dig down 10, 20 meters into a granite outcropping to find a large enough large enough piece that doesn't have flaws in it to create something like this. And then you have to remove all of this material. And and it's a reductive process. So you, you can't make a single mistake. If you make a single mistake, you have to scrap it and start again, but there's no mistakes made with this. And these and, are uh, everywhere. Like And 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 Ben, um I mean, let's just be honest. All you have to do is to take the official narrative and say it's just a whole bunch of people that just spent 25 years with the chisel. That doesn't make any That's sense right. to me. No, no, it doesn't. And I'll, I'll give you another example that I like mm. to use uh, that, that really blows that out of the water. And, and that, is, that is precision. So a lot of these, 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 um, these objects, the vases, the boxes, the statues display a degree of precision that is simply unachievable with hand tools. Now, one of the, the best example, you can look at this flat line, you can look at, at perfect corners and flat surfaces. Uh, Patrice Poyard, a friend of mine uh, um, who created uh, the, the documentary Revelations of the Pyramids, 
he also released a great documentary called Builders of the Ancient Mysteries, has been doing some good work with uh, actually defining things like flatness uh, at a lot of sites where he can actually use some of the modern tools like surface roughness meters. And it turns out some of them is flat perfectly down to like a couple of microns, like 1.5 microns. But what I what I find to be convincing other than the the linear straight stuff is the the complex shapes. So for example, the the heads of some of these statues, uh, they show obvious signs of you'd almost it, it's almost like a 3D mill, like a mill, like a like this is a, a sphinx. No. This is no this is a, this is the head of a Ramsey's head of a head of what they would call a Ramsey statue. Uh, this photo comes from Chris Dunn's book, uh, who I, is a friend of mine as well. And what he's done here is is basically, see, it's a reverse transparency overlay. So he's basically taken the photo, made it transparent, 50% transparent, taken another uh, photo and and flipped it horizontally. So And then you overlay it over the top of each other. So you can see Chris's hand and uh, and head here on both sides, right? What it's showing you is that this is perfectly symmetrical, like like perfectly symmetrical you you would see if if there was a mismatch you would see it in this in this in this transparency overlay now this isn't this is just not achievable by hand and and again there's there's many of these statues and there's there's a lot of analysis that's been done on a lot of these statues you cannot do this by hand so even even incredible works in marble and things like like david that that capture the statue of david i mean that capture the uh you know the essence of humanity it's they don't have the same degree of, of, of symmetry in them, and, and intentionally, I suppose. But these statues do display it. And it's not just the, uh, it's not just the faces, but also the, the crowns, the headjets. Um, this is actually that same uh, head that he was looking at. This is a photo that I took of it. Um, it's absolutely remarkable. You, cannot, you just can't do this by, by hand. These were made probably, I have to guess, it's something like a huge 3D mill. And so some of these statues, you know, you're talking... 400, 600, 1,000 tons, um, and, uh, single piece granite. <laughs> and just before you continue, because um, you told this to me the other day, but <laughs> they might not have even been those particular pharaohs that we were told. No, almost certainly uh, I think they weren't. Um, there's really <laughs> strong just, evidence. Yeah, don't you want to just quickly explain that? Yeah, sure. So what you find, in fact, I have some examples to show you, is, is that um, – the way archaeology works and the way that we've painted this picture of the past is has been done in a lot of in, in the majority of it is done by reading what's been written so it's it's what is written on the object so if you write your name on something most of the time the archaeologist is going to go well you're the guy who had it built and what you find on a lot of these artifacts is a couple of things one one is that there's a tremendous technological gap between the the writing itself and the any any and the object itself so there were techniques in stonework that were employed to make uh objects that far exceeds that which was used to make the writing so here's an example right so this is my buddy uh my friend yusuf standing underneath the lid of one of one of the 25 massive uh granite boxes in the serapium of saqqara so these are like a hundred ton granite boxes right they're they're absolutely gigantic uh i've got a better picture of one of them um it's it's a series of under it's a series of underground galleries uh here's actually here's a couple of pictures of another one so we're walking up to one here uh this is one stuffed in a back corner of a room uh just tremendous in size uh, this one's not quite finished 
but the insides of these things are perfect. Like they have perfectly shaped corners, surfaces, the stone uh, on most of them, the, um, the very, the, the very, the finished ones is, is entirely polished. I have a photo from inside one of them here. Uh, so yeah, here's an example. So this is the this is inside, right? So these are flat walls, perfectly shaped corners. The stones are oh, polished out. Word. Oh, and that was obviously done with a chisel. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and again, these are single pieces too. So single piece granite box, not bolted together like we'd make it today. This was hollowed out and shaped. Uh, they're absolutely remarkable. Yet this is the writing that's on them, right? This is this is what's been done to the outside of, of, of these boxes. You can see that the stone polish is perfect, but then you can see someone's attacked it with a chisel, and they've you know they couldn't even keep their lines straight, and they've written glyphs and things all over it. But and the way that archaeology puts these boxes into the into history is that they read what was written on these, and they go, okay, that's the guy who had it made. And there's just this huge gap between how you do this writing and then how you make the object. It's 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 the equivalent of Hieroglyphic graffiti, I would I would say, in a lot of cases. Wait, so, wait, wait. So what you're me... saying is, so what you're saying is that somebody would have come like they'd go to like, like they go to a wall today with a with a spray can. They would they would have gone yeah. to one of these things and um, and chiseled into it. Yeah, it's the equivalent of like little Timmy who tags mm. a skyscraper, and in 500 years or a thousand years, somebody sees, well, there's little Timmy. Uh, he must have made the skyscraper. Like that's mm. it's that's the equivalent, and that's. You'd be amazed at how much of our picture of history is put together by just that technique. There, there are other techniques, but but far and away the most common thing is, well, we, we look at what's written on this stuff and we basically attribute it right there. And that's how it works for these Serapium boxes. As you can see here, like these, they couldn't even keep the line straight. Yet you can make, per if you can make perfectly flat surfaces and perfectly straight lines, how come you can't carve a straight mark into it? Um, now, this there's obviously well-made hieroglyphics as well right there's the, this is this is the best example to, to show the difference but even on when you even when you're looking at like say better example of hieroglyphs so, so this is an example of one of the boxes that's in the the Cairo museum uh this these are better made glyphs but again you can see the shine you can see the reflective polish that's on the granite box itself that's not a natural property of the stone the box was polished uh which is very difficult to do and then somebody has quite clearly come along with a chisel and they've marked it up now this is considered very valuable because of the writing, because of the story the writing tells. But there's quite obviously a technological gap there, right, between the object itself and the writing. And, we, and once you see that on, on things, in, particularly in Egypt, it's, you see it everywhere. It's on the statues. The writing's not the same. I could show you endless examples of this. Now, what else happens, and this is quite common, it's, it's a process of inheritance, more or less, right? So what, what happens is the rulers the, of the, the kings, and in particular guys like Ramses II, his son Meren Patar, even his father Seti I of the 19th dynasty, were notorious for this. This is, a, and I have a good example of it here. They would write their names on stuff. They would put their names on an object. And today we consider Ramses II to be the greatest ruler of Egypt, the most powerful, because his name's on damn near everything. And this is this is his cartouche right here. This is Ramses II's cartouche with the uh, the large circle, the guy sitting down with the 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 ankh or the staff. This is his um, royal seal, yeah. but and and just look how precision those etchings are. Yeah, well, this not this isn't this isn't particularly good work. It's deep. What Ramses would do would carve it in deeply. But if you if you look at the end here of this of this block, and this is a repurposed piece from an obelisk. So this once was an obelisk. It's been repurposed into a wall. 
Sure. Uh, but this was a chunk of obelisk. But take a look at the end here. See, he, he had these techniques. You, it is possible to write over. They would they would carve their stuff over. You can see the bird on the end here. And if you look at it in context, what, what's happened is there was writing on this before, probably from a, a king earlier than him. And Ramses is actually having it erased with his name. So he's writing, basically writing over what was written on before and the job was never quite finished. Is that, is that why that bird is, looks like it's fading out? Yeah, exactly. So this is, and mm -hmm. in fact, you can see the lines. If you, you look carefully, the lines above the bird are, are of a different nature to the, the lines that are above kind of the cartouche mm. here. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a carving from an earlier time that Ramses is erasing and putting his name on it. Now we see this, it's very clear that this is this case on, on the statues. You go to Luxor and there's these giant statues that they say are Ramses and, it's, and it's, it's like on the belt line, there's this roughly carved cartouche of his name that is completely out of sync with the technology of the statue itself with all of the fine details. Uh, in fact, in a couple of places, he's, it's sort of he's made a, they made a mistake when they carved it and they carved over some of the features of the statue, uh, so you can clearly see it came later. Like it, there there was it like a knife. There's a knife on the belt that's there and he's he's carved over that with the cartouche, which if that would have been put somewhere else if it was part of the original design for the statue. Um, you, we also have examples of of things that have like the names of multiple pharaohs on them, like six or seven. So what it means is that we don't really know how old these statues were. Uh, we don't really know who originally made them, but we all all we're seeing is that okay, Ramsey's put his name on them. But as far as mainstream history goes, we attribute it to uh, we attribute all of that to Ramsey's. And the the crazy thing is is that some of these statues get absolutely gigantic. This is this is at um, uh, Karnak Temple. This is a, a hand as you can see the thumb here. It's a it's a thumb. It's made of a conglomerate stone. Very hard to work. Very hard and soft material involved in it. Uh, and it's absolute. It's a piece of a of a single piece statue. You can see this is the thumbnail that I've got my hand on, and and it's what's interesting about this is yet again the details of this thumbnail, the way it's carved, are utterly remarkable and precise. Yet the the cartouche that's the cartouche that's on the the top here is is rough. It's it obviously came later, but it's can you imagine the size of this the, originally? This would have been well over a thousand tons. Um, sure. That's just the hand of it. Other pieces of it are all over the place. We have evidence for these size statues at in multiple places. So, you know, some someone was doing some pretty big work. And when you're talking about moving around thousand ton single piece stone statues, without a I'm wheel. sorry, you're not without yeah with without wheels or with it just just with primitive methods in any circumstance like with wood and mm. sand or by just human horsepower, which is all the Egyptians had according to the historians. They didn't use they didn't use pulleys. Um, they developed the wheel later on, but you're not you're just not gonna do that with these primitive methods. And no one's ever demonstrated. I think you, you can move around a hundred tons, two hundred tons, but I think once you get into this realm of four, five, six hundred tons, a thousand tons, um it's it's a different story. And you know, we have we have evidence for those sorts of objects, not just in Egypt, but in other places too. Uh that's another aspect to I think to the whole story, which is you have machining, you have precision. And then you have the logistics involved with both quarrying and lifting and moving uh, uh, these big blocks of ben, stone. Ben, um, just before you continue, uh, interesting comment yeah. by uh, Donna. She's saying, you know, could it could there have been giants because everything is so big? There's certainly plenty of anecdotal evidence for giants. 
and but I, 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 it's kind of like it doesn't. I, I think is it's likely that there were giants. I think That's, I'm not 100% convinced of this, but I still don't think that. I don't care how how big your giant is, is it doesn't really help you lift a thousand ton uh, block, um, and it do, also doesn't explain the precision. So to me, it's in some cases things like the pyramids they are shaped for modern like, like humans. A lot of the, those the objects and the particularly the um, the architecture that I think mm. comes from an early period, like the Valley Temple, they're shaped for like human size. But even if we had giants, let's say, I don't think it explains the the precision aspects of the work, nor the the gigantic weights involved. Like for example, sure. this is the um, this is the unfinished obelisk at Aswan. This is about twelve hundred tons. Uh, it's mm. a single piece of stone that's still attached to the bedrock. And this thing's actually on an angle. It's on like a 15, 20 degree angle. There's, there's, it's like granite mountains all around it. They would have had to have lift this up 30 or 40 feet up out of the, the cavity that it's in and then somehow maneuver it across these rough granite mountains to get it to wherever it needed to go. It's just not – it's one of the biggest sort of problems is like how in the world did they do this? And they evidently did because like we have mm. statues and we have other objects that are in that weight range, um, you know, not just – not just Egypt either. This is uh, what's called the Stone of the Pregnant Woman. This is in Baalbek in Lebanon. Um, there's uh, a couple of good pictures of it here. There's actually this this thing's about uh, I think about 1,200 tons as well. The stone that these guys are standing on is actually larger. It was a recent discovery. Uh, it's probably around 2,000 tons. Again, Long single week. piece of, of stone. Um, this was likely the Romans when they built their Temple of Jupiter on the the foundations of Baalbek. They probably had no idea this was here. They might have known this was here, but they they pro almost certainly didn't know that the uh, this larger stone on the bottom was here. You can see it here. They're they're clearing it off, but gigantic. And and so something else was going on. Like I, you just you need technology to achieve this. And once you start to go down that path of like okay, so there's technology and precision and oh, there's things like that involved in the manufacture and the moving of some of these objects, then it kind of blows the whole picture of these primitive civilizations out of the, out of the water. Either, either, either we vastly misjudged them and their capabilities, or they didn't do it and they inherited this stuff. And I think what we look at when it comes to a lot of these things is we're looking at the evidence for a longer timeline. We're looking at more up and down of civilization and, and, and the, the, the achievements like a, a, a high technology civilization in the past that what then if, sorry, what if, was inherited. What if, what if somebody like, I don't know, David Icke has a point where it was extraterrestrial involvement, for example? It's possible. I mean, there's, you can't rule it out. So I would, I would say that uh, there's certainly something going on in the extraterrestrial realm. Like, there, I, it seems clear that we're being visited. There's a real phenomenon that 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 is, that is, um, that is become. It's sort of gaining momentum now. You governments, even the U.S. government's kind of admitting, like, all right, we don't know what these things are. And it also certainly seems true that that they've been around for a long time. Like these, the the, the stuff flying around in the sky. You know, you can't really if, if those sightings have been happening for decades, you can't really say, well, it's a hypersonic drone, because it, that's a recently recent invention. But these things have been going on for, uh, around for a long time. Um, other examples you have, like the the alien abduction experience, is very similar to uh, being taken like a medieval 
depiction of being taken by the fairies that they would call them fairies but the 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 experience that people report on the back of that is 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 more or less the same so i think for sure there's something going on there but i don't really know if it's if it's uh if it is you have to invoke them to explain the the uh the um the stuff that we see i think advanced human civilization explains it so and a couple of the reasons that you can give for this is that things like the great pyramid for example as precise as it is it's still not perfect it's not quite perfect in its alignment uh it's very close but not quite perfect so you think that maybe if if it was some you know if you had the technology to travel across a galaxy or to to travel through space then you'd probably have the technology to make it to make it perfect um so I, yeah, I don't, uh, I, I don't sort of invoke aliens with this. I, I think an advanced human civilization uh, does cover the basis for it. But that said, I definitely think there's there's a chance. I think it's a chance that humans our, ourselves could have been genetically engineered. Like there's, um, I, I'm a fan of the intervention theory. Whether or not whether it, whether it applies to DNA and life itself on this planet as it being seeded from somewhere else, the Prometheus model, uh, or it's also possible that hu- our human homo sapiens were, were genetically engineered. There's actually some evidence for that. Uh, Lloyd Pye, the late Lloyd Pye did a lot of interesting work in that, in that, in that respect, kind of looking at the fact that we have an extra set of chromosomes than all of the other primates. There's a lot of oddities. Like when you get into the whole missing link thing, you know, there's, there's gotta be like two dozen missing links to explain kind of the evolutionary jumps between us and our nearest cousins. Um, so which yeah, I also, think something which also puts question marks on evolutionary theory. At least, can, in the, yeah. At least in the current model. Right. Yeah, it's 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 you getting into the weeds on 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 our place in that evolutionary mm. chain. It's there are huge missing gaps. Like that's mm. that's what the whole missing link idea comes from. But you you need a, a you probably need a dozen of them to really explain mm. where we come and, from. There's a lot of strangeness in the human genetic code too. We we. We appear to be a very young species in a lot of ways too. We we have, you know, we still have this, and we have a range of diseases in our genetic makeup that, um, like for example, we ha- we still have diseases in our genetic makeup that both make they're fatal and they make you infertile. So you'd think that sort of stuff would be bred out over time. Like, how do you pass that on if you can't, you know, if you can't if you can't have children and it's a fatal disease, how does that gene sort of stay in the gene pool? That it, it eventually it breeds itself out. We see that in a lot of other species, but we still have some of these things in our species that other species don't. Like it's, yeah. Lloyd Pye did a lot of good work. He has a, a great lecture um, that you can still see called "Everything You Think You Know Is Wrong." He does, he does go down the Sitchin route, the Anunnaki Sitchin route, eventually. But I, I, I have a particular interest in his work on particularly the the DNA evidence and the genetic evidence for some strangeness. I mean, you said you said to me a few days ago that it also by extension, pulls into question uh, the out-of-Africa hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. Well, and there's certainly studies that have that show that that's... Um, that, that contradict that story. So, in particular, mm. there was a, a genetic study that showed a connection between the people of Australasia and the people of South America. So, the, the model, the, the, the out-of-Africa model, more or less, with the peopling of the Americas goes along the lines of well people came in through that bearing uh, the land gap in the in the in the ice sheets in the north they went into the north america central america and then eventually south america but we see with a recent study shows that there's a genetic similarity these indicators 
between people in South America and people in Australasia. But that same link doesn't exist in the peoples of Central or North America. So you've got this connection that, that stretches across the Pacific and it, it indicates, well, okay, there was a migration or a mixing of people across the Pacific. So it's a whole other model of of uh, of of the diaspora of humanity onto the planet. It it definitely contradicts the out of Africa theory. So, um, yeah, it's and, not, and, I don't spend a lot of time looking at that. Yeah, but, but yeah. I mean, adding to that, they talk about how humans crossed the oceans, but they didn't have boats in the linear model. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a strange thing, and well, you know, we did. That's the thing with people assume Egyptians as well were like. Um, we're just sailing up and down the Nile, but it's really not the case. They had huge ships, like much bigger than the Vikings. They had massive ships. Uh, Tor, a guy named Tor Heyerdahl uh, demonstrated that he created like a raft boat and he sailed across the Pacific in it. He went to Easter Island and he, he kept going on. Um, uh, is my video frozen? Yeah, it's frozen. There was a great question that came in from, from uh, I think it was Norman, asking um, how much older is the sphinx to the pyramids yeah it's that is a good question it's one of the it's one of the primary indicators of 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 an older civilization that's existed in places like the giza plateau uh for much longer than the dynastic egyptian civilization so i i mean just at a at a top level i would say the sphinx is at least 12 to fifteen thousand years old it may be much older than that um and it, i think it was one of the original uh structures that was up there i actually think that there's a good chance that the middle pyramid and the complex for it is, is um, is of the same age. So I think it may, and I think it may have been first. I think the way that, that it works now is they think it was the Great Pyramid first, then the middle pyramid, and then the third pyramid of the three large pyramids at Giza. But I actually think that order's more likely to be the the middle pyramid first. Uh, it's the most megalithic of the pyramids. It has the largest uh, blocks on the outside. It's also connected to the Valley Temple, which is just an astonishing work of granite um 70 ton blocks that the whole thing's put together you you can barely even see the joins between the stones but the sphinx is 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 has been a controversial topic because of of john anthony west and and in particular dr robert shock who was a professor of, of geology and uh john anthony west invited uh robert shock to come and take a look at the erosion that's shown because the sphinx sits in an enclosure right so it's been cut into the ground it's 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 formed of bedrock so they cut an enclosure in the ground and then they formed the sphinx that holds shape and head out of the natural outcropping of bedrock now the sphinx is itself its body's been repaired many times so it's it was repaired in ancient egypt times the romans repaired it we've repaired it in modern times so it's kind of hard to tell what's going on with the body but the walls of the enclosure itself haven't been touched and what they show particularly the left hand side wall they show these vertical fissures that Robert Schock and many other geologists um, have determined that this is this is rainfall erosion. So this isn't wind and sand. The only way you get that that particular shape and those erosional features is from rainfall. Uh, now, of course, Egypt is a desert and, and and it doesn't rain there very much. I've seen it rain once, but you know it's a pretty rare occurrence for it to rain. But if you go back in time far enough, say ten to twelve thousand years ago. The climate was very different. Um, the, before the Sahara was there, it was a lush and verdant place that had a lot of rainfall. And you, in, in order for these the limestone of the bedrock to erode to that degree, you're talking like thousands of years of rainfall like the, to create these erosional patterns. So 
that's a real challenge to the the mainstream version of history uh, and the timing of the of the Sphinx. Now, when when Robert Schock thought he made a discovery and he he went and went into like uh, the you know Egyptology conference and he presented his work and 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 thought he was onto something, but but was basically laughed out of the room like oh the old boys club they called it ridiculous and <coughs> quite famously Mark Lehner said show me the pot shards like if show me you know show me if 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 you're saying this object is 10 or 12 or 15,000 years old show me something else show me anything else this and it's the main rebuttal that they've used for dec- for a long time now to to say well this the sphinx isn't can't be that old because the only response they have is well there's nothing else from that age now a decade later the german archaeological institute in turkey digs up gobekli tepe which is a massive megalithic site that was deliberately buried and has been carbon dated with organic material to exactly that period, 10 to 12, 15,000 years ago. Uh, so they found it and it's not that very, it's not very far away from Egypt. It's, it's up in Turkey. In fact, they found a number of these sites now that go back. They, they really push the boundary of back further, but it's a, it's the first time we found a specific megalithic site that shows evidence of civilization that is dated right in that period when shock says the sphinx could have been carved so it, it deliberately it, it completely debunks this idea of well show me the pot shards show me the other evidence of something else that's in this age range and we we asked that we asked zahi who asked this question you can find the video on youtube actually uh, during the debate with uh, graham hancock which is was a hilarious um show like he he really he, he threw a huge fit and uh wouldn't debate him um and it's it's all caught on camera, and we 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 had the videos up on on YouTube. But he, you know, we asked him about Gobekli Tepe and what its its impact on the Sphinx, and he's like, "What are you what are you talking about?" He just claimed he didn't know anything about it, and that it was nonsense. And it's actually really funny because this also came out with some of the orthodox skeptics. Instead, it's just, it's so silly. In, instead of actually moving the date for civilization itself back to around the time of Gobekli Tepe, which is again a massive site, all huge stone circles big pillars, stuff weighing up to 20 tons, high relief carving, uh, evidence of civilization. Like you need specialization. You need civilization. You need a large population basis to create these things. Instead of changing the definition of, of what civilization started there, what they did was they changed the definition of hunter-gatherers. So they've now added this idea that the hunter-gatherers on the weekends, maybe just to get away from all the women, would go and do stone carving or something. Like, they just changed the definition of what it meant to be a hunter-gatherer, and they didn't didn't budge that civilization date at all. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. It's clearly the product of civilization, and uh, and so yeah, I I would long story short, I would put the Sphinx at about that time frame, but I also think it's possible that it could be anywhere much much older, like up to like fifty thousand years perhaps. Um, and Robert Schock said some similar things, although publicly he. He's pretty conservative uh, with his dates, but it's certainly possible that it's older than that. Still. Yeah, so the Egyptians, as we know them, wouldn't have constructed it. No, I think they carved the head on it. Like, I think they, 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 you know, whatever it was originally, uh, most likely a lion, uh, possibly an Uber, possibly a dog. Mm. I think a lion, but they for sure carved the head. And in fact, there's, I have a whole video diving into this as well. Like, the head, you go back, if you give that 50 years without, pulling the sand out of the of the enclosure the thing gets buried up to its neck like it just if you go back and look at old photos of the sphinx it's like the head poking up out of the ground 
Now, now they say that the erosion on the body and that the erosion in the in the enclosure is the result of wind and sand erosion. It's mostly buried. How is it wind and sand erosion when it's buried? Yet the the part of it that's not buried, the head, doesn't show any of this erosion at all. Like it's it's almost like it's fresh, and you know, it's so the part that should show the erosion doesn't show any erosion, and the parts that show the erosion are usually buried, in the you know, and they can't really get erosion from that from that aspect. It's this backwards logic that gets used. Plus the head is clearly um, the wrong dimension for the body. It's much too small. The body's too large for the head. And if one thing that Egyptians were do, they were masters of proportion. They were, they were artistic. They knew the correct proportions uh, in their carvings and their artwork. They wouldn't have made that mistake deliberately unless they were recarving that head from something else that was there. So uh, yeah, I think, I think it's quite likely they recarved it. You have, given me an opportunity for a great segue because uh what's also sitting up to its head at least until recently were the statues on easter island yeah the moai exactly and in fact i mentioned uh tor Heyerdahl earlier he he the guy who built the reboat and and then sailed across the pacific he also did a bunch of excavations at the moai at the at rapa nui at easter island and yeah, they all seem to have bodies. And it's like, how in the world did all these bodies get buried in 30 feet of sediment? Like, what? how long have they been there? And just to be clear, right, this is an island in the middle of nowhere with these gigantic yeah. statues. Yeah. Huge statues plus megalithic walls. Yeah, so they, they have the statues. They call them the Moai. They, they, uh, they, it's a real mystery, actually. Easter Island's a mysterious place. I've not been there yet. I have to go there at least once. And... Um, but there's a wall that a lot of them sit on that's quite well known, and and that wall is like a just picture perfect replica for what you find in Egypt or South America. It's the same megalithic work, uh, so it's very likely the same builders. So and then you have these huge, huge heads and in fact bodies that some of them are in the quarry, some of them are standing up, but a lot of them that were left lying around here and there. Uh, are buried in sediment so something happened either i don't know if they were deliberately buried but or a flood happened or something something carried that sediment over them um it's a similar story i just i just like as i said over the last few weeks i've been i've been really working hard producing a video on tiwanaku and pumapunku which is an absolutely mysterious place in the the altiplano of bolivia but likewise it's been subject to a flood like there's a lot of geological i think I would love it if we, if we, if geologists spend a bit more time, maybe analyzing kind of some of these aspects of these sites, because I think we can learn stuff from them by looking at things like, you know, time frames. How long does it take for that moai to be buried in sediment like that? You know, how, when was it a period of of flooding on the Altiplano in Bolivia such that it buried this megalithic site? And I think we could use that to help us pinpoint some of these dates and show that the orthodox timeline is off, but. Every time that happens, you, when when another scientist steps into the domain of the archaeologists, they get their you know they get laughed out of the room. It happened to Robert Shock. It's happened to any number of um, of other researchers. You know, it's and it's. I think though, the, what we need is we do need. It has to be a multidisciplinary approach. I. It frustrates me endlessly that the archaeologists claim domain over anything as long as it's old. It doesn't matter if it's geology, engineering, stonework, stone. I mean, if it's old, they're the experts but it's just not the reality. Like you need those experts, like the engineers, the stonemasons, the geologists, like those are the guys that we should be looking to for those expert opinions, yet it doesn't happen. Was was this kind of, what do you call it, architecture 
Uh, was it happening all over the world? Yes, I think so. I think there's certainly evidence that um, we have two things. You have, I, I would say you have a, both a pyramid building culture and you have a, a megalithic culture. Now, maybe they're connected. I think certainly in Egypt, in some places they're connected. But that's those are like the two broad strokes when it comes to, I think, connections in culture. There's There are many other connections that indicate a global civilization. And, and a lot of those are cultural indicators that come through with myths and legends and things. But from a, a building perspective, you have megalithic work that's extremely similar between Peru and Egypt, for example, and Easter Island. You also find it in Lebanon. You find it in Turkey. Uh, you find it in some places in Russia. Uh, there's there's some of some places like that. Even in Japan, there's megalithic work that that fits the that fits the mold uh, of these same um, ancient civilizations. A similarity. So it seems to be all over the world. There's slight variations with it, but it's it's a you know this is a difficult style of 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 building a wall. For example, if you you want to find the hardest way to build a wall, then you build it in that megalithic style with no mortar. It's perfect joinery, you know, giant stones. Usually all stones of the same. Um, type so one of the things that's an indicator of this is that it didn't matter how far they had to go but but when they wanted a specific material that's the material they 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 used now whether or not that means they had to bring the stones 500 miles or anything like that there's they used it later cultures like the inca they would use local stone they're like doesn't matter we just we're going to just pile this stuff up and not have to spend all the time to carry it from a long way away the other i think commonality is you there's there's a strong culture of pyramid building now this this is obviously yeah, in egypt why but i don't know but yeah i don't i don't know what's at the root of it i i someone there are pyramids someone, all over china you know someone said you in the comments uh could it have been some sort of power generator well there's a lot of theories in that in that aspect when it comes in particular to the to the egyptian pyramids um mm. than the great pyramids and I think I so I my gut feeling, and this is not, you know, this is from um, a lot of research and having been in it many many times. And I I do think it's industrial. Like I think a lot of these sites, Pumapunku, Tiwanaku, seems to be an industrial site. It had a purpose. So one of the things you'll find is that if you go and look at the textbooks, it doesn't matter what it is. If the archaeologists and the mainstream will tell you, it's ceremonial. Everything is ceremonial. Everything is, it's a tomb or it's a ceremony space, or it's it's symbolic. There's nothing that's industrial about any of them, whereas I think there's quite clearly something else going on here. Now, in terms of technology, and this applies to that ancient civilization, and it may apply to a, a functional purpose for some of these sites and for the pyramids, the answer to some of those questions may yet lie outside of our understanding of technology. So it's like, you go back, If I love to use the example, if you take a, a phone, like a cell phone, it's a dead phone, right? And you go back 100 years or 1,000 years and you show it to someone. It's it's just this shiny bit of black plastic that that you, you have no idea what it does. And, you know, it's just you break it breaks if you smash it. But you and I know what it is. We couldn't, you and I couldn't build one, but we know what it is because we understand concepts like, well, we know what, what cellular networks are. We understand the internet. We understand what a camera looks like. We the sound and, and all of these, these, you know, wireless networking and things, we have the context to understand what this is and put it in its place. So I think there's a good chance we're looking at some of these rocks or some of these objects and it's the equivalent of, you know, a caveman looking at an iPhone. We, we don't have the context to put that, 
put that the function or the 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 purpose of the thing into place yet but you know we're working on it like we we we're, we're all sorts of emergent sciences we're learning more we'll know more in 100 years we'll know more in a thousand years and i i suspect quite strongly that the ancient global civilization that created a lot of this stuff their technological avenue was different to ours they 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 went down a more organic path we have a electromechanical approach to problem solving and yeah i think it, i think we're we're like frogs looking at iPhones in a lot of cases so long story short yeah i do think that the pyramids had a function uh, i suspect a lot of the sites had a function there's some crazy you see this at giza you see it at abu sia there's a very odd combination of stones that have different electromagnetic properties. I have a video exploring this between basalt, limestone, and granite. They have some of them work as conductors, some of them work as indica as as insulators. There's also some weird melting and 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 flaking of stone in different places beneath the floor of a lot of these temples at Giza, at Abu Sir, at other places. So you have these floor tiles that are perfectly polished, you know, a couple feet thick. Beneath that floor level, there are these channeled U-shaped blocks that carried a network of what was probably copper pipes, but they were pumping material and water around beneath the floor. And some of these, you know, some of these blocks are made of like relatively difficult and hard to find stone like alabaster or even granite. And it was never meant to be exposed to the eye. Like for what purpose are these down here? You know, the, the, the Egyptologists say, oh, it's a, it's a sewer system, you know, for like the, the one guy that lived on the temple to take a pee, he could, he would run off. But this is, there's a whole network of like industrial-like features on these sites that is unexplained to this day, uh, and I, I do think there's something to the the phenomenon of underground single-piece boxes. We see boxes in the pyramids, and we have tons of sites where there are these gigantic stone boxes underground that must have been made for something. And you know, I don't think they're all sarcophagi. Mm. You know, the whole story of the Serapium with these hundred-ton boxes is what they well, no, they they were they were sarcophaguses for bulls they would take the apis bull a sacred animal and they would mummify it and stick it in this box it's nonsense they never found a single bull in any of these boxes uh you could fit a half a dozen bulls in the box as well and there's just no evidence for it there's there's they, they take that from some of the, the writing that's on one of the boxes but there's something else is going on here like you don't create a box like that 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 is perfectly engineered and and the lid creates a hermetic seal, like it's airtight seal. It's almost like a pressure vessel. Um, you're making that for something else. Like the, the, that precision doesn't happen for artistic or for ceremonial purposes that you, you're chasing a function. You know, that's the, there's a relationship between precision and function. Like you only develop the ability to do things in a precise way if you're chasing a functional return. Otherwise it's just too expensive. You might as well just color within the lines and call it good. You know, if you, if it's artistic, it doesn't matter. But yeah, the, the, just the, the very fact that these things display precision aspects tells you that there was a function that was being chased in the first place. So yeah, I did, long story short, but it's possible that the, that the pyramids were an energy generator. Yeah. What do you think happened cataclysmically speaking? Well, so there's there's a lot of evidence. It's flood, uh, flood or impacts. I mean, this comes from we have the science that's emerging around the Younger Dryas Cataclysm. So that there's a, a group called the Comet Research Group. Uh, I've I've met a few of those uh, guys. Graham Hancock's wrote written about it extensively in his works as well. Uh, so there's a lot of evidence now um, that that tells us that okay, there was 
there was a series of impacts that, that, that most likely happened. There's something like 150 peer reviewed papers now behind this theory, by the way. So since, since I think 2007, I think since then they started to come out. So there's always been comet myths, you know, impact myths and stories in the past because I think people witnessed them. But from 2007 onwards, there's been more than 150 peer-reviewed scientific papers now that are looking at things like impact proxies in the strata. So in fact, it's really funny. There's more than 50 sites in the US. They went to like archaeological sites because you have very good providence in the strata. So you, you sort of mapping we know what sort of date periods these different layers in the ground correspond to. So they do microscopic analysis of that material and they would find things like extraterrestrial platinum, shock synthesized nanodiamonds, magnetic spherules, and all these things that look proxies of impacts. So they only are formed and created with cosmic impacts. So, you know, comets or meteorites or whatever hitting and exploding like big explosions. So you have you have all of that evidence, and there's more than 50 or 60 sites all around the world, North America, Europe, South America, South Africa, in fact, at the the Wunder Crater, I think it's called over there. Is a, there was an, a very famous, actually, mainstream guy that was like, yep, this we see this same black matte layer and this iridium and platinum in the soil here. Like, this shows the result of an impact, and we kind of can date that stuff by the layering. It also corresponds with the megafauna extinction event, right? So the end of the Pleistocene 13,000 years ago, all of a sudden we lose hundreds of species of megafauna out of nowhere. Saber-toothed tigers, the American lion, the woolly mammoths, there's, you know, the, the armadillos the size of Volkswagens, the, the giant sloth that was like the size of a giraffe, like weighed like 10 tons. So many megafauna went extinct in that period. So, you know, 13,000-ish years ago. Uh, the sea levels rose very rapidly in that period. Um, all of these things sort of correspond to this one period. So what what I think happened was, and this is the the, the most modern thinking on it, it was a series of impacts from a fragmenting comet that likely came out of the Torrid Meteor Stream, which we crossed twice a year, and it probably splattered down across the ice caps that were on, were uh, r across most of North America and Europe. North America in particular seems to have been a center for this, and that that caused some big, big problems. So it caused massive climate change. It caused the sea levels to rapidly rise uh, hundreds of feet. You know, you, you have this evidence for absolutely catastrophic flooding in areas like the Channel Scablands of Eastern Washington State, which was the outpouring of all of this water. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be up there in September with Randall Carlson uh, looking at that again. It's absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, and that translates into flood or fire. So another thing, it's not everyone thinks it's not just flood, it's also fire. There was... There's evidence that shows up to 10% of the biomass of the planet was on fire during this. So that's insane. Like that, that's like 10% of the biomass being on fire. And what's interesting about it is, is if you go back and look at any ancient culture, religion, including ours, you can't find one that doesn't include myths of massive floods or fires where, where the people before them were wiped out and had to start again. Um, um, the, the flood yeah. of, of Noah. The flood. Yes, exactly. So it's the rain for 40 days, 40 nights, and everything sank and everyone died. You also have like, even in, in the, in the, in revelations, it's, you have a literal depiction and description of impacts. There's like the, whatever the third angel blew his trumpet and a fiery mountain fell from the sky and it, and it landed on the lakes and the rivers and it, it killed everything. Like they literally talk about, they're giving you a description of, of impacts. It, it the Bhagavad Gita, 
uh, and the Mahabharata and the Indian um, history, they, they it literally says swarms of meteors came from the sky and obliterated everything. Like I think a lot of these we're seeing is eyewitness accounts written into these stories of cataclysm and it's backed up from so many different aspects now and that's what's happened like like we we had a civilization we grew up and then you know something really bad happened and the biggest thing that hit the planet in the last five million years hit us and basically knocked us back to the stone age for five or six thousand years until populations grew enough to uh to start again and and we're on that path since we started again i call it the the latest revolution of the cosmic hamster wheel of human civilizations. Do you think that uh, there was a cycle before the previous cycle? Quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, it's, these things do seem cyclical, uh, particularly solar events that there's, there's good evidence that, that suggests that there are, there are phases to the sun and the sun can also cause cataclysms on the planet. Um, you know, it's, it would certainly not, I mean, not just, not just knocking out our electric, electric grids and things like that, but it could actually like, you know, be extinction events that come from the sun. And there's some evidence that suggests there's cycles like that, that create that. Um, we're, we may be going into one right now. One of the, the problematic and worrying uh, things that's happening to the planet is the accelerating decay in the strength of the Earth's magnetic field. So we, we may be heading up towards a pole shift. In fact, the, the magnetic poles are, are moving further and further every year, and it's like this curve of, of decay and strength. So, you know, it might have taken 100 years to lose 1% in the strength, and now it's only 10 years to lose 1%. So it's it's like we're, the field is both weakening and the poles are shifting further and further. In fact, they're, I think the South Pole is not, not even anywhere near, um, or the magnetic South Pole is not anywhere near Antarctica at this point. It's out in the ocean somewhere. Um, so it's possible that we're heading towards a pole shift. And the problem with with the magnetic field weakening is that that's our shield against the cosmos. It's the shield against the sun. It's the shield against any of the you know radio radioactive um, uh, storms that come at us. So if if you, it's possible that the sun may have a cycle too. The sun may even act up at the same time that our field goes down. Then it's going to be a big problem for everybody. So and there's some evidence that suggests that's that's happened in the past. Um, you know, a lot of the depictions that are written, uh, that are drawn, sort of correlate to 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 a, to things you would see in the sky during these periods. There's evidence for like gigantic lightning strikes at Giza. That you know, Robert Shock these days thinks is 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 very much on board with the idea that the sun played a part in a cataclysm in Egypt, and there's evidence for that up at Giza. Uh, so it's yeah, it's I think we're learning that, that these cycles and cataclysms happen more frequently than, than they did before. And, um, you know, we, we're in a very, as for as advanced as we are, it's a very delicate civilization. It would not take much to, to destroy our way of life. I mean, you know, we run on a couple of days of surplus in, in terms of food and fuel and things like that. And, and our electricity grid and the internet's very sensitive to electromagnetic radiation yeah, it wouldn't take much, but we're, we're, that's why I think it's important for people to understand that these cycles are happening and we should, while we're in a position to do something about it, uh, we should be doing it. Um, you know, Randall Carlson likes to think that maybe, maybe humans and our civilization is the planet's response to this, to these constant uh, upsetting of the equilibrium because the, the, we, the planet keeps getting knocked around and maybe its response is to produce us and, and we're here to fix that or we're here to 
you know, we, we go into space and figure out like, all right, we can knock the next rock that's coming at us off course or something like that. Um, is there, but yeah, I don't know. Is there evidence that uh, previous civilizations had flight? Uh, I think so. I, I think um, nothing's super direct. A lot of people look at some of the depictions of, of like the Maya. There's drawings that seem to indicate flight. There's like a couple of little objects that seem to look like like planes and things. I I think I think there's evidence in it from the the fact the undeniable fact that things like the dimensionality of the planet uh, are encoded into a lot of these um, monuments and ancient maps for that matter. So the ability to measure longitude plus the dimensionality of the planet very uh, very precisely encoded into monuments like the um the great pyramid uh also into ancient maps there is you know maps of antarctica maps of 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 uh of australia that that have like come to us from sources that were lost in the library of alexandria and been transcribed on other maps but there's there's lots of evidence for some very advanced geodetic knowledge that 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 suggests okay, it's either flight or it's just a or it's like a really precise way of traveling across the oceans. And I, 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 I don't suspect if they had the technology to, to to understand all of these things and to do the work that they did, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't have also mastered flight. And there's there are some legends and 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 stories that seem to indicate that as well. Uh, there are you know these ancient um, civilizations talk about a lot of them describe. Uh, what could be interpreted as high technology, it's obviously magic to them, but it's like a primitive civilization that sees, for example, they, they, there's a, in the, the Inca or the, I think it's the Maya, the Inca or the Maya talk about it's uh Wirakosha and, and some of their great civilizers coming in, in boats that moved across the water without sails and made snakes of the ocean, which is basically describing a wake, uh, you know, like a, a wake or a rooster tail or something without sails. It's like a, a motorized boat. Um, there's, you have things like that that apply to to flight as well, but yeah, I don't, can't remember that. And could we be also talking about multiple races and multiple species? I think so. Um, one thing we're learning is that there is um, there's a lot more to the human genetic history. So we we firstly we've been here longer than we think we have. Uh, the story of history has been pretty fixed. You know, we used to think we were about 50,000 years old as a species. Now we know we're at least 300,000 years old from the latest fossil evidence that was found in Morocco for a basically identical human to us. I think that's the oldest fossil they've found. We seem to have, um, there's the genetic uh, indication. So us and the Neanderthals split split from a common ancestor around 800 to 900,000 years old. There's a study that suggests that. So that's kind of the window uh, I, would, I, I would put us in on the long side, it's like a million years old. And then we're also figuring out that, okay, there were lots of other, like the Denisovans and the Homo floresiensis, and there's a whole bunch of other versions of humans. And some of these versions like the Denisovans have evidence of machine use and tooling and, you know, culture. Uh, there's a bra as a jade bracelet that, for example, that's at least 40 or 50,000 years old that I think was made by the Denisovans. So, it's possible that that an ancient civilization could have involved not just us but other species as well. Like we, for sure, we lived alongside a lot of our cousins for a long time. You know, um, Neanderthals are, are thought to have disappeared about fifty thousand years old years ago. We have Neanderthal DNA in our in our DNA. 
And the more and more we find, the more it's like, well, there's there's strong evidence for tool use, very similar to, to the primitive Stone Age humans. Um, because one thing I will say, if, as much as we talk about a, an ancient high-tech civilization, I, I do think it existed alongside primitive hunter-gatherer Stone Age cultures, for sure, um, in the same way that we do today, although in much less of a degree, right? There are still uncontacted tribes. There are in a few places in the world, people still living that hunter-gatherer existence alongside our civilization. I think there was far less people in that civilization in the past. And, you know, it, the balance was different, but it's certainly possible that two things can exist at, at once. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? What do I see? It's <laughs> a good question. I don't have it. I'm, I'm looking for the crystal ball. Um, I, that's, yeah, I don't know. You're asking me what I would like to see in it like what would be my thing just just in general it's just a question all right it's just the question oh man that's yeah i don't know in front of me a crystal ball i'd like to see if it was something assuming it's a crystal ball that i can look into at the past the question i often ask myself is if i had to go back to one place in time and and see how they did something but you can only choose once what would it be uh i i would i would uh, i would i would probably go back to uh, to see what happened at the the Serapium, uh, that's what I would see. Is is how that was was done because that site just blows my mind. It's my favorite site in Egypt. It's an underground labyrinth with all of these boxes, these twenty five hundred ton boxes in them. They were worked on down underground. They were somehow moved in there and perfectly centered. They were brought in from God knows where because they they're made of all different types of stone. And there was a function for that. I'm convinced there was a function for that site. It did something. So. Yeah, that's that's if I had a crystal ball and I could see something, that's that's what I'd like to see in it. So I'm not sure if that's a good answer or not. <laughs> it's perfect. Ben, where can people follow your work? You can find me on YouTube, uh, UnchartedX or at UnchartedX.com. All my videos get posted on my website at UnchartedX.com uh, or just go and look me up on YouTube. It's YouTube.com slash C slash UnchartedX. Ben, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Jim, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Don't go anywhere. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.